So I want to bring the Lord's word to you this morning, uh, a word of encouragement and a word that I believe is, is from him. But before I do that, I just want to, you know, I, I, Simon said a little bit about who I am and how we met and that kind of a thing. But, you know, um, I was reading, or I think I heard a story about Bill Clinton. Um, you remember Bill Clinton, one of the most popular presidents in America in living memory unlike some other presidents we have and have had. And uh, I was uh, hearing this story about Bill Clinton. It's a true story. On his second campaign election trail, he went to a, uh, a residential care home for senior citizens. Nice way of putting it, isn't it? And uh, he was just talking to residents there, and of course everybody knew who he was, and he was just enjoying conversations with them. Then he saw a little old lady sitting on the edge of the room on her own. So he thought, um, I'll go over and have a word with her. So he went over and uh, spoke to her, and after a few minutes, he said to her, my dear, do you know who I am? And she looked at him very kindly, and she took his hand, and she said, sweetheart, if you don't know, if you go to reception, they will tell you who you are. <laughs> and you know, we, I don't know who you are and you don't know who I am, but you know, there are two things I believe that are foundational to our faith before I get into the word that God wants me to bring this morning. Two things are this, and if we can get these two things right in our lives, everything else will be right in our lives. And one of them is that we need to know who God is. And the second thing is we need to know who we are. And if I, ju I just want to say a little bit about that just very quickly. You know, Jesus reveals in, in the Bible that God is good. Amen? And God is a good, good father. That's who he is. And I know you know all that. I know you know it. And there's nothing bad about God, nothing bad at all about God. There is nothing bad about God. There is nothing negligent about God. There is nothing disappointing about God. There is nothing bad about God, nothing controlling or harsh. God is good. And that's who he is. And when we know that in reality for our lives, it makes a huge difference to our lives. And the second thing is who I am in him. And you know who we are in Christ? If you can sum it up in a very, very broad general term, it's this. I am loved by God. That's who I am. That's my identity. I'm loved by God. And I really believe we can get those two things right in our lives we will be absolutely invincible, absolutely invincible in this world. We will be completely free and completely invincible. And I know you know these things, and I'm not majoring on this this morning, but just to say this, I'm sure many of you can quote chapter and verse about well, you know, God says he's good and who we are, we are loved by him. But we need to know that in a way that transforms our lives. And if you remember, John, the disciple of Jesus, he always described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you remember that? Do you think Jesus had favorites? 
No, I don't think he did. I don't think he even was against Judas, you know. He didn't favor John over Judas. Jesus treated all of them alike. But somehow, the disciple John knew that he was loved by Jesus. And it made a huge difference to his life. Peter didn't know that in the early days. Peter knew it after Pentecost. James didn't know it in the early days, but James knew it later when he became a a very important and significant church leader in Jerusalem and was eventually martyred, I think. And we need to know that in a way that transforms our life, that God is good and that I am loved by him in a way that transforms our lives, the way we see life, the way we treat our children, the way we treat people at work the way we see people who don't know Jesus, in every kind of a way, that kind of transformation, the way we face troubles and difficulties in our life. Now, I want to talk this morning about uh, Stephen, the, uh, the martyr Stephen. And I want to just draw out three very simple points uh, from Stephen, the, the story of Stephen. I'm sure we all know that story very well. Uh, And it's simply uh, about this, that, you know, whatever troubles we're going through, whatever difficulties we face, Stephen shows us how to deal with that. Not just in a one-off thing, but in a lifestyle attitude of how to cope with troubles. Anybody here never had any troubles? If you'd like to raise your hand, I'd like to meet you, because I think you must be from a different planet. You know, Job, in the Old Testament, he said, man is born for trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. There's an inevitability about trouble. Do you find that in your life? You know, you, you get through one challenge and one difficulty, then another one comes along. Or, you know, maybe troubles that your children have or your teenagers have, and then another one comes along. And Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation, troubles. But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And I want us to look at this story of Stephen. So if you've got your Bibles, let's uh, just turn to Acts chapter 6. I'm not going to read a lot of scripture this morning, but just uh, some key, key verses. Um, so Acts chapter 6, and uh, I think you know the story quite well. The early church was growing rapidly, and the apostles wanted to not be distracted by this welfare program that was taking place in the early church. They had this massive welfare program where they were feeding widows and orphans, taking care of them, where they were distributing the communal wealth of the believers. It was an amazing welfare program. And the apostles said, we don't want to get bogged down in this because we want to give ourselves to teaching the word and to prayer. It's good to hear about your powerhouse uh, coming up. Um, And so they set apart seven men, and one of these men was Philip. And it's interesting that the qualifications for these men were were they were to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. And so they set apart these men, and one of these men was Stephen. Now, if you just join me at at verse 8 of chapter 6, it says this, Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Not bad, was it, for someone who was involved in a welfare program? 
Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Sicilia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against his holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all those who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then chapter 7 is all about Stephen's speech to the council. And then uh, he ends his talk to the council by calling them stiff-necked and uh, rebellious and murderers, saying you killed the prophets, then now you've killed the Messiah. And, uh, you know, this is really, really bad. And it says, verse 54, when they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing of him. We're praying this morning, Lord Jesus, that you will open our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, and the, and the, and the ears of our understanding to hear you, to meet with you, to respond to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Three things I want to say about this passage. Very simple things, things that you can easily, easily remember. My nephew did a PowerPoint for me, Mike. Some of you know Mike Sheehan. Did it very well, I thought. I didn't give him any guidelines apart from, you know, the words, but I thought he got the whole spirit of it very well. So the first thing that Stephen does here, and these are things that we need to take notice of, not just as one-off things that we do, but as a lifestyle um, habit that we need to keep doing as believers. He looked back, and we have that coming up there. Stephen looked back at the history of God's faithfulness among the Jewish people, starting from Abraham, going right through to Moses and deliverance from Egypt, and then David, and then Solomon, and the prophets. And he he charters the faithfulness of God uh, in their history. And you know, it's very, very good for us when we're up against problems and difficulties and challenges is to look back and remember what God has done in our lives. And, you know, I'm not just saying do it once or do it twice, but make that a continual habit, a lifestyle habit, to keep on reflecting on what God has done in your life. It's very good for us to do that. 
And, you know, it's very easy for us um, as human beings to look back in anger or to look back in bitterness or to look back in regrets. It's kind of like a human natural response that we do. But the Lord wants us to look back and remember his faithfulness. And we, you know, when we look back on our lives, we can, we can choose, we can select whether to focus on the really, really negative stuff or focus on what God has done through those difficulties that we've been through. And I'm sure if I, if I threw this open uh, for us today, there would be loads of people who could talk about what God has done in their lives, not just 30 years ago or 20 years ago, but last month. Last week, you know, yesterday I went to a family gathering, not my family, not my immediate family, but somebody else's family in Sussex. And I went there with my my son and my daughter, and they're now adults. And uh, before I left, this uh, older lady came up to me and she pushed an envelope in my hand. And when I got home, I opened it and I was completely staggered. A substantial cash amount that the Lord had given me through this woman. And I was just, wow, Lord, you know, I hadn't asked for any money. But I'd just been praying and saying, Lord, you are the provider. You are my provider. And I want you, Lord Jesus. I want you. And I'm sure like me, I can, I can look back on my life. You can look back on your life. And even when you weren't even following Jesus, you can look back and say, God was guiding me there. God was protecting me there. God was with me at that Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know. And then there's other times when, you know, God has been amazing. Simon talked about 1990 was the year we met. I think it was about 1990. I went with two other people from Ixthus. We, we, it was when the year when Ceausescu was uh, overthrown. Do you remember that? Some of you older people, older ones, more mature ones, I should say. And you know, he was shot by firing squad. They rose up against this, this dictator who was uh, living an opulent, uh, obscene life and the rest of his people were in poverty. And the Lord spoke to me after that happened and, and I got talking with somebody else in the congregation. They said, yeah, I, I, I'm agreeing with that. So three of us went, we hired a truck and we took all kinds of things for children's homes in Romania. We worked through local churches he went to Clark's, the shoe people, and said, we're going to do this. Can you give us any shoes? They gave us 500 pairs of shoes. You know, people are very generous if there's a good cause. We went to hospitals and said, have you got any old equipment, x-ray equipment that's working, but you don't need? We took loads of x-ray equipment. We took loads of clothing, second-hand and new. And, uh, you know, my story on this is that one of my mother's friends... Uh, in her home church in Lincolnshire, she said, I want to bake your daughter a cake to take with her to Romania. So she baked this standard size fruit cake, you know, just like a fruit loaf tin. Fairly, you know, not huge, but, you know, average. And uh, we took this with us and we thought, well, I'm not sure if we really need this, but we'll take it anyway. When we got to Romania, there wasn't much to eat. You know, it was very impoverished country. Most of the food was sort of like watery soup. Nothing very substantial. And we, ate, we lived on that fruitcake. I tell you, three of us, we had it three times a day, one piece each. And that fruitcake, I'm not exaggerating or lying, that fruitcake never finished until the day we returned into mainland Europe. Incredible. 
God's provision. Now, I'm sure you've got loads and loads of stories like that where you've seen God's provision, even God's healing. You know, when I was in Romania, I used to have really bad hay fever. I had sought God for healing for hay fever. Time and time and time again, nothing ever happened. When I went to Romania, God healed me because I was doing partly his works, you know. God will do it his way. (laughs) And it's very good to remember what God has done in our lives and to look back with thankfulness. You know, I'm living in Malaysia, I said, and uh, I have never met such a people who are continually thankful. And they don't have very much, you know. They have a corrupt government, very corrupt government. They have poor education. They have minimal medical care for the, for the indigenous peoples. Who, you know, it costs them one, it's 20 pence. If they go to the doctor, it costs them 20 pence. That includes medicines and seeing the doctor. And many, many, many of them can't afford 20 pence if their children get sick. And yet I have never, ever heard these people complain. Isn't that remarkable? And I think about us here in the West. We have so much, and yet we complain so much. <laughs> they have so little Yet I rarely hear them complaining. And you know, I read once somewhere, on I think one of my favorite authors, it was either Brennan Manning or Henry Nowen, he said the highest form of giving is thanksgiving. The highest form of giving is thanksgiving. And I want us to remember, when we're going through those difficult times in our life, to look back and remember what God has done. And to remember and to say, Lord, you've never let me down. You know, God has never let me down. Has he let you down? Sometimes we think he might let us down or because we have a skewed idea of what his provision should be. But when I look back on my life, God has never, ever, ever let me down. Never, ever, ever abandoned me. Never, ever. And so I have every reason to believe that what's facing me for my future, God is right there and providing because he's good and because I am loved by him. Okay, the second thing Stephen does He looks up, verse 55 of chapter 7. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I think if there were a crowd of folks rushing towards me with rocks in their hands, the last thing I would do would be to look up. You know, isn't it crazy? Stephen, he looked up when this crowd were getting stoked up with anger, religious fervor, jihadish, that's what they're doing, religious killing, that's what they were into, jihadi. Jihadi, how do you say that? Yeah, you know what I mean, jihadist. And yet Stephen, this man, full of the Holy Spirit and the grace and the wisdom of God, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing. That's remarkable in itself because Ephesians says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. But here Jesus is standing. Why, I wonder? Maybe Jesus was getting ready to welcome the first martyr of the Christian church. I don't know. But more importantly, Stephen sees Jesus at the right hand of God in all his power, in all his authority. And we need to see Jesus in our problems. We need to see who he is, that he is the one who has all authority and all power in heaven and on the earth. And that's hard for us 
because we are people who are flesh and blood and we get overwhelmed by our everyday situation and circumstances but we can train ourselves to keep looking towards Jesus and we look towards Jesus not with these eyes but we look with the eyes of our hearts and looking towards Jesus is simply meeting him simply listening to him simply reading his word and meeting him in his word and saying Jesus I've got to get hold of you I need you. I've got to get hold of you. I've got to get hold of your perspective on this. What are you saying through this particular challenge and crisis that I'm going through? What's going on here, Lord? And that's what Stephen did. And he saw Jesus. And that was a huge comfort to him. You know, I thought it was interesting. I was here last week, and when Simon gave that definition about wisdom, I don't know if you remember what he said about wisdom. And I was thinking, that's what Solomon did, wasn't it? When God appeared to him in the night and he said, ask whatever you will and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, I want wisdom and knowledge to be able to rule these people correctly. And God said to him, because you haven't asked for honor or wealth or riches or for the lives of your enemy, I'm going to give you what you asked for and I'm going to give you all these things as well. And really what Solomon was asking for was Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is full knowledge. And that's all we need to keep asking for in every difficult situation we're in. Is Jesus, I want you, I want you. It's a bit like, you know, we know that with our children. I've got two grown-up children now, but I'm sure many of you have children or you know, you know these stories. When your child has a nightmare, your little one has a nightmare, um, you, you, you go into the room, go into their bedroom, and they're crying. Now, you don't switch the light on and say, okay, this is why you had a nightmare. You ate too much cheese last night. Or this is why you had a nightmare, because you watched that scary film with that monster in last night. I told you not to watch it, but you insisted on watching it. You don't do that. You know, children are not interested in the reason why they have a nightmare. They want comfort. They want your presence, so you hold them and you reassure them, it's okay, it's okay, mummy's here, daddy's here. It's okay, it's okay, I'm with you. And I'm going to stay here until you fall asleep again. Isn't that true? And yet we do, often in problems, I find that in my life in the past, when I have problems, I want to know why I've got the problem. And the heart question of why uh, is never answered by a head answer of why we've got that problem. You know, I remember in 2009, I was made redundant. And uh, it was very difficult for us because I was the main breadwinner and we had a mortgage. And I was saying, why, Lord, why, why? What's, you know, of course, I knew why, because I was last in the company and first out when the recession came. I knew why that was. But that didn't bring any comfort to my heart. It was only when the Lord said, it's okay, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you in this. And it's so easy for us to ask a why question from our heart and want a, an answer to, to our heads, but the head will never be satisfied with those answers. It's, it's Jesus' presence himself. That's who we need. And uh, that's something I'm learning more and more. So we want his presence. So how do we see Jesus? I'll just give some practical helps here about some of these things. Uh, and that's simply this, you know, Jesus made it very clear that discipleship and seeing him, following him and seeing him are very closely linked together. 
I'm not going to turn there. In Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 10, there's two uh, stories about blind men being healed. Now, the interesting thing about these blind men being healed is that they had obviously been able to see previously. One in Mark chapter 8 is the blind men of, of Bethsaida. And uh, he's brought to Jesus. And uh, if you remember the story, uh, Jesus spits on his eyes and uh, lays hands on him. And he, and he says, what can you see? And he says, I can see men as trees walking. He clearly had been able to see before. But for some reason, his vision wasn't very good now. And Jesus prays with him again, and then he sees clearly. Then in Mark chapter 10, you get the story of blind Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus, you know the story, is crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, the messianic, crying out to the Messiah. And uh, Jesus goes up to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? Strange question for a man who's blind. And he says, Lord, teacher, I want to see again. So clearly he'd been able to see previously. And I think Jesus is linking our following him, our obeying him, our, dis- our, our discipleship with him, with being able to see clearly. And I want just, just to say this morning, I know that you know, all of you here are very keen on the Lord and keen in your faith, but you know, what, are you, what are you looking for from the Lord today? Maybe some of us are looking for you know, a certain job interview that we've, we've had and we want success in that. Maybe some of us want to make more money. Maybe some of us want, you know, a, a more successful life or, you know, happy children or whatever. There's nothing wrong in asking for that. But at the end of the day, we need to see Jesus. We need to lay hold of him and then everything else will follow. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, when we follow Jesus, it's, we see him more clearly. Now, I've been a Christian. I, I don't know how many years. I mean, I was horrified to hear from Simon this morning that we met 27 years ago. I was quite staggered by that. So was he, Fiona. Yet they haven't changed. They look exactly the same. <laughs> 27 years. And, you know, I've been a Christian a long, long time. And I've been involved in Christian ministry a long time. And yet there have been times in my life when I haven't seen Jesus in the way I should have seen him. And there have been times in my life when I've got a bit stale in my relationship with the Lord and a bit complacent. Do you know what I mean? And one of the key things I'd like to just mention on this before I move on to the final point is that you know, wherever Jesus went, everybody was amazed at him. Do you remember that? They were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his wisdom. They were amazed at how he healed people and all the rest of it. They were amazed at him. And, you know, Jesus hasn't changed. He's still amazing. When was the last time you were amazed at Jesus? If it's more than a month, I'd like to suggest that you need to do some serious soul-searching with the Lord. Because Jesus hasn't changed. He's still amazing. And, uh, you know, I am still being amazed, absolutely, utterly amazed at the point of tears when I see Jesus, not with these eyes, but with these eyes. When I see his beauty, when I see his provision, when I see that God is good and that I am loved by him, I am amazed by that. 
And I hope that you are too. And I think one of the keys to that is we really want it. You know, every day I say to the Lord, I only want you, Jesus. I only want you. I only want to be amazed by you. I only want... I only want you, I want to know you more, I want nothing else. I want you to be absolutely central in my life. Because everything revolves around Jesus. You know that, don't you? The whole of the universe revolves around Jesus. Every wisdom, every knowledge, every family matter, every work matter, right at the center of it all is Jesus and his wisdom. And if we haven't got him in those things, then we're not going to get very far in our faith. So Stephen looked up and he saw Jesus. And clearly, you know, he didn't just do this when, they were, when he was being stoned. He did this for years and years and years. It became his regular practice. And I want to encourage us this morning to, to keep on looking up. So the first thing we do, we look back and remember with thanksgiving God's faithfulness to us. Second thing we do, we look up and we see Jesus, 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 not, not religious stuff, not I've got to do, I've got to read my Bible 10 minutes every day, but Jesus, I want to meet with you in the word. Jesus, I won't be satisfied until I meet with you. Jesus, I've got to get your perspective on this. Jesus, what are you doing? Show me your presence. And then the third thing that Stephen did was he looked in. Well, he didn't really look in, but we're looking into his life. Have you noticed that when you've got a, a sponge and you've got a bit of water in, when you squeeze it, the water comes out? You know, that's what difficulties and problems do in our lives. They squeeze us, and whatever is inside comes out. Is that right? And for a lot of us, it might be sweetness and goodness, <laughs> graciousness, for others, it might just be, you know, bad language or rudeness or bad-temperedness. But difficulties have that way of squeezing us. So whatever is inside will come out. And here this happens to Stephen. And what does he say? He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Who does he sound like? Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus said on the cross. He says, secondly, don't hold this sin against them don't hold this charge against them father forgive them jesus said they don't know what they're doing so it could have been jesus speaking so we see stephen in the most difficult time of his life he is like jesus you know that's the whole point of uh, of our christian faith the holy spirit wants to make us like jesus he wants to Form Christ in us, as Paul said to the Galatians, as Paul said to the Philippians, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, until the kingdom comes fully. He's going to complete it. But it's not automatic. You know, some Christians think all that's going to be automatic. I just sign on the dotted line, I become a Christian, and I don't have to do anything. It's just all automatic. But it's not at all. It's as we make choices in our difficulties, choices to trust God, choices to forgive, choices to let that grievance go, choices to do the right thing before God, the godly way of doing things, that God is committed to make us like Jesus. That's what it's all about. I'm very excited about that. It's called sanctification. And uh, we know that word. It's simply being made like Jesus. You know, I'm going to 
um, Fiona and Simon's house for lunch after this, which I'm looking forward to. (laughs) And, you know, I'm going to their house as a guest. And if I go into their house, I've never been to their house, I've got no idea what I'm talking about, but if I go into their house and I say, yeah, you've got a lovely house here, Simon and Fiona, but actually I would move that picture, if I were you, I'd move that picture over there and... uh, that sofa there doesn't really go, you know, take, put it outside, you know, let the bin men take it. Or, you know, this lamp here, <laughs> this lamp here, that doesn't really go, so why don't you put it over here? You know, if I went to their house, if I went to any of your houses and said that, it would be extremely rude because I'm a guest. And, you know, many of us treat the Holy Spirit like that. Paul says that the Holy Spirit... Uh, wants to use our bodies together and individually as his house, his temple. And Jesus says that when, you know, when somebody becomes a Christian, the Father and the Son come and make their home in them, in that person, by the Spirit. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come and live within that person, not as a guest, but it's his house. Yet so many of us as Christians, you know, when the Holy Spirit says to us, I want to move the furniture around a bit, you know, I want you to get rid of that. I want you to stop talking like that. I want you to stop being critical. I want you to stop being judgmental, whatever it might be. We kind of say, well, hang on here, Lord. You know, this is my house. (laughs) We probably don't say that consciously, but subconsciously. Do you know what I'm saying? And the reason we do that is because most of us have quite a rosy view of ourselves deep down. That's why it's important to know that God alone is good. You know, most of us have a little bit of self-deception. You hear people say, well, I do the best I can as a Christian. I'm trying my hardest to follow Jesus. God's not interested in the best that you can do. He's interested in giving you the best, which is his son. Absolutely. And you know, that's what the rich young ruler, I was just thinking about that when I was preparing this. The rich young ruler came up to Jesus, a young man, very attractive man I think Jesus loved him and he knelt before Jesus and he said good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said straight away why do you call me good you know only good only God is good alone and and I used to read that I think well Lord that's a bit harsh isn't it you know this guy's coming up to you he's saying you're good because uh, he sees the good things that you're doing you know the miracles the healings the teaching and so on he's calling you good He wasn't trying to flatter you, but Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good alone. And what Jesus was doing was getting to the heart of this man's understanding of goodness. See, this man thought that because Jesus was doing good things, that he was good. And Jesus saying, no, it's not that. You're only good when you let God's life live in you. The life of God live in you, breathe in you. Be your main resource. Be your life. And of course, he thought he was a good guy because, uh, you know, he, Jesus said to him, have you kept the commandments? He said, yeah, I've kept all those since I was young. And I honor my father and my mother and I tithe this and I tithe that and I respect them and all the rest of it. He thought he was a good guy and Jesus said, no, goodness is nothing to do with doing good things. But it's allowing the life of God, the Holy Spirit, to bring the life of Christ within us so that his goodness, his life, His responses, that sanctification that I've already mentioned. So we look back 
we look up and we look in, you know, problems and difficulties are great opportunities for us to to let the life of God go deeper into our lives. And of course, we need one another in that as well. We need others to pray with us and to help us see a different perspective as well. But in all our challenges in life, let's remember to cultivate that lifestyle attitude, looking back at what the Lord has done, looking up, getting hold of him now for this situation, his presence, and looking in, what's God doing? You know, I want to become more like Jesus. Okay, I'm going to finish there. <laughs>